right, hello everyone, welcome here. Those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main uh, teaching pastor here at Southland, and we're going to go into uh, part four of our series, Is the Bible Really God's Word? And uh, next week then, Pastor Ray is going to be preaching on Mother's Day, and then after that I'll have uh, one or two more weeks in this series, just to kind of wrap it up. And I, I've really appreciated it, lots of you guys have been sending me questions, and so I've been co- kind of compiling common questions that people have that you guys are getting in the community, that you have yourselves. And so I just wanted to show you just a little uh, uh, blurb of the things I want to touch on yet in this series. And uh, like I said, it'll take me a couple weeks after Mother's Day yet, and then I should be able to, to uh, tie it off. But a couple of the questions that you guys have been asking, common ones that I want to touch on yet in this series is why are there so many ang- uh, English translations of the Bible? Which ones are right or some wrong? Uh, another question I want to touch on yet is uh, uh, why are some parts of the Old Testament similar to some of the myths and ancient, other ancient religions, like for example, you know, there's a flood story in the Bible, there's a flood story in lots of the other ancient uh, religions. So, uh, you know, what's all that about? Is the Bible just a myth? So we'll talk about that. Are there mistakes in the Bible? Uh, which laws are we supposed to follow today? That's the one I'm going to talk about today. And, uh, and then is the Bible uh, hate literature? Those are some of the ones I want to talk about. And today we're going to talk about uh, which laws do we follow today. And, and again, the reason I'm doing this, this whole series... Uh, I have not been uh, speaking this series to, to non-Christians or atheists or anything like that. This series is not for non-Christians. I haven't given yet this whole talk about, you know, is about really God's word. I haven't been giving you proofs that the Bible is God's word that would affect someone that isn't a Christian already. Uh, I mean, that's a whole other line of reasoning and thinking that we could do, but that's not what this series is about. This series I'm preaching because of what's happening within the church here in the West, that more and more Christians are coming to doubt and lose confidence that this book is actually from God, and I'm trying to show the inconsistency in all of that, and, uh, and so this, this is a series to Christians, and today's message in particular is being preached because one of the uh, attacks that is being made by more and more uh, Christians, more liberal Christians and stuff, is that uh, is they're saying that those of us who hold this, this book to be true in God's word, they're saying that we're inconsistent in which laws we follow and which ones we don't. And this is one of the big things. They say, well, you guys hold to the laws on sexual morality, but you don't hold to the law, for example, about head coverings. So it says in the Bible that women should wear head coverings. You guys don't wear head coverings, but you do hold to the laws on sexual morality. You guys are inconsistent. You're just picking and choosing. And their point is, since you guys are picking, they don't, really, don't want to follow any of the laws, so they think if we're inconsistent about some of them, they don't have to follow any of them. And so that's what we're going to really tackle in today's message is, are we being inconsistent? Do we follow all of these? Do we just pick and choose? How do we know which ones? I think it's a super important message. And I think by the end of this message, I I was asking God, what's sort of the big thing you want people to get from this? I want you to have a peace of mind about this book at the end of this message that you're going to see it really isn't all that hard to interpret this thing and apply it to daily life, all right? That's what I want today, some peace of mind and that your faith will be built up, all right? So bow your heads with me and and close your eyes and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I want uh, every person here today to have their faith built up, that this that your word really is your word and your commands really are your commands and this actually isn't all that hard and we're not being inconsistent when we obey your commands. Your commandments are good. They bring life. They bring joy to the heart. It's a a joy to, to study them. It's a joy to obey them because they're from you and you are wonderful. And so I just pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit here today. I pray that you would open up our ears to hear everything that you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
All right, so which laws are we supposed to follow today? And I want to start by just talking about three myths. Because before we can even talk about the specifics of like, why don't we follow the head covering one, but we follow this one. Before we can even talk about the specifics of that, I need to just, there's just this layer of myths that Christians have about the do's and don'ts in Scripture. And lots of Christians, again, I've talked about this before in other messages, but lots of Christians have this idea like the Old Testament is full of do's and don'ts, but the New Testament isn't. There's this myth that the New Testament is all about grace and relationship, and certainly the New Testament is filled with grace, and it is all about a relationship with Jesus. But the thing is, the Old Testament is also filled with grace, and it's not just the Old Testament that's filled with do's and don'ts. The New Testament is absolutely filled with do's and don'ts. In fact, there are probably just as many do's and don'ts in the New Testament as there is in the whole Old Testament, and this is really important for us to start to get through our heads. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't the end of an era of you ha- it matters what you do and what you don't do. That, it still matters, your behavior and your choices. And so I just want to take you a quick survey through the New Testament. I want to I just blow up this myth that the New Testament doesn't have any do's and don'ts. The New Testament has just as many do's and don'ts as the Old Testament. There's hundreds of passages. I don't have time to show you all of them, but we'll just do a quick skim here. Ephesians 5.18, let's start there. Do not get drunk. That's a don't. Do not get drunk. That's a don't. That's in the New Testament. You can look it up, Ephesians 5.18. You can look in your table of contents. Ephesians is not in the Old Testament. That is in the New Testament. That's a don't. And this uh, this same don't, do not uh, get drunk, is actually repeated three or four times in Paul's letters. He says, don't get drunk. Some of you are going, please, move on already. Just move on off this one. Feeling a little uncomfortable. Okay, let's go to Colossians 3, 9 to 10. How about this one? Do not lie to one another. That's another don't. Look it up in your table of contents. Colossians is not in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with do's and don'ts. Do not get drunk, Paul says. Like it's something you have to obey as a Christian in New Testament times. Do not lie to one another. Okay? Don't lie. That's a command. It's a sin to lie. God's angry if you lie. That's what the New Testament says, not the Old Testament. And I'm not just pulling these you know, verses out of context. If I go the four verses before this one, Colossians 3, 9 to 10. In fact, I'm going to put those up there right now. And let's start at verse 5. And you're going to find that the lead up to do, do not lie is a whole bunch of other don'ts. Okay? This is all New Testament. This is an Old Testament. This is New Testament. And Paul says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And here's a whole bunch of things for Christians in New Testament times. These are don'ts, behavior to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. The Greek word there means depraved desires and lust. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay, this is New Testament, not old. Paul says in the New Testament... He says, it matters that you stop doing these things. These are choices, these are behaviors, these are don'ts. Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It matters. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. You must. It's not optional for a Christian. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And again, so that's 10. That's, I think it's 10. One, two, three. Okay, close enough. I wrote it in my notes. 10 don'ts there in just a few verses. And there's, again, hundreds of these throughout the New Testament. And again, one of the reasons I'm, I have to do this before we even talk about the specific laws is there's this super popular teaching out there that more and more Christians are being sucked into, and it's this idea that Christians are no longer under God's laws. And it's because of a statement Paul makes in his epistles 
but they just teach that Christians are no longer under the law, and what they mean by that is we no longer have to think about the do's and don'ts. We no longer have to think about God's commands because we're all under grace. It's just grace. We just need to think about love, and we just need to think about grace, and that'll be enough. But the thing is, the Scripture comes against that because the New Testament is filled with do's and don'ts. The New Testament. Not the Old Testament only, but the New Testament itself is filled with do's and don'ts. And whatever you want to call it, you can play semantics, but a do and a don't, what is that? It's a command. It's a rule. It's something you have to follow. If you don't follow it, God will be upset. It's a sin. So you might not want to call it a law, but that's what a law is. It's just something you have to obey. That's what a do and a don't is. God says, don't do this or I'll be mad. That's on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's a law. We Christians most certainly do have to obey God's laws, and the New Testament is filled with many of these do's and don'ts. See, God cares about your behavior. God cares about your choices. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, God cares about your behavior so much, he says this, or do you not know, again, this is New Testament, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So your behavior affects your eternity. I mean, this is, just, this is all New Testament teaching. It's just everywhere saturates the whole thing. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he's going to give us some more don'ts. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's nine more don'ts. Okay? Now, of course, he's not talking about here. Some of you are, you know, the fear is rising up your chest. Oh, I'm doomed, right? Because you're thinking back to your past or whatever. This passage isn't about, you know, at one point in your life you lived this way and then you repented. No, no, then you're forgiven. This passage isn't, also isn't talking about, you know, at some point in your future you're going to make some, a serious mistake. No, no, we're all, we all make mistakes. We all fall short. We all fail. That's not what this passage is about. It's not about, you know, what you did in your past but you repented of it. It's not about, you know, in your future you're going to mess up and you're going to have to repent again. What this passage is talking about is people who just say, God's law doesn't matter anymore. I'm just going to live this way unrepentantly. If you just want to live this way unrepentantly, then you cannot, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's impossible. Because you cannot walk with a holy God on the one hand and do these wicked things on the other. It's impossible. So yes, when we repent and we mess up, he forgives. His forgiveness and his grace is so awesome. But you can't walk in these things unrepentantly and walk with God at the same time. It is, it is impossible. And like I said, I could show you hundreds of passages in the New Testament. I'm just showing you a little snippet of Paul. I could show you Jesus. I'll just throw it up there for a second. I just, I just did a five-minute skim of one message, you know, Matthew 5 to 7, three chapters in the Gospels. That's just a five-minute skim, and I jotted down all the do's and don'ts Jesus preached. In just those three chapters, we could go through the Gospels and find lots, but don't lash out at people in your anger, and uh, don't look at a woman lustfully, don't divorce, don't break promises, don't take revenge, don't judge, do pray for your enemies, do to others what you would have them do to you, do good to those who hurt you. That's just a few do's and don'ts from Jesus. Jesus, Paul, it's all over the New Testament. There's not less do's and don'ts in the New Testament than in the Old. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now, and you're going, Chris, the God you preach is just a big killjoy. Well, the first thing you have to realize is it doesn't matter what you want God to be. He is the way he is. I'm just preaching to you what we find actually how God really is as defined in Scripture. Okay? But the other thing you have to realize is these do's and don'ts. It's not about killjoy. It's not about these are so hard to follow. The do's and don'ts in Scripture are all about relationship. That is what the do's and don'ts are about. 
The do's and don'ts show us what God is like. They show, it what he, show us what he loves and what he hates. And if you want to walk closely with him, you have to know that. The do's and don'ts are all about relationship because you can't walk with God and be doing things that disgust him. So the do's and don'ts, it's not about God being a killjoy. It's not about me being a killjoy. It's not about the Bible, you know, just about just randomly putting all these things on us. The do's and don'ts reveal to us who God is. They reveal to us his heart so that we can follow him and walk closely with him. The do's and don'ts are all about relationship. Let me, let me, let me just use a personal example, okay? And I've been real transparent with you, you know, the last couple of weeks, and so I'll just be transparent again. Um, I have all my life had a huge problem with sprinkles, okay? And uh, really bad. Um, some of you are going to see serious. No, I'm actually serious, okay? Uh, sprinkles. Ever since as, uh, as a little kid, I can remember, in fact, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't have a problem with sprinkles, okay? So I'm pretty sure it's actually from God. And uh, <laughs> I remember as a little kid, and, uh, you know, the family would go out for donuts and for a treat, right? So you get a box of donuts. There's six of us all together, and so you got to get a dozen donuts. And always, one of my siblings always would get one of these disgusting donuts covered in sprinkles. And, uh, and the thing is, and my mom knew this, but, so she would often have to flick them off my donut, but the thing is, sprinkles on a donut, it spreads like a disease, okay? <laughs> it doesn't just stay on that one donut. And so uh, I would always look at my donut if any of those sprinkles had infected my donut, literally, and to this day. Like, I'm, not, I'm actually not making this up right now. They really disgust me. I can't, I can't handle a donut or a piece of cake or ice cream that's got, got sprinkles on it. It just drives me crazy. And people sometimes say to me, you need to get healing for that. And I always say, you need to get healing for wanting to eat something like that. Okay? <laughs> so I just can't stand them. And also, kind of related to that is... I, I can't stand glitter. Like, you know kids want to put glitter on everything when they do crafts? I can't stand it. It gets all over you. You can't get it out. It's sparkly. Oh, it's just, it's gross, okay? So they say, what does this have to do with the do's and It's really an inad- inadequate uh, uh, analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. Now, let's say that you're sitting out there today, and you're thinking to yourself, I would really like to be Chris's friend. And you're just, you're just a lonely person, and you would like to be my friend, okay? And so you think, you want to be close to me. Now, one of the things you have to realize is, if you want to be my friend, okay, but you're one of these people that you have just glitter and sparkles on everything, okay? Like your house is like glitteries all over the tablecloth and glitteries on the chairs and glitteries all over your hands. When you touch people, they come away sparkly and everything you make is decorated with sprinkles, okay? You might be a very nice person, but you and I are never going to be close. Never. <laughs> because I can't stand those things. Like I, I could not go into your house and come out like that, it would drive me crazy. We couldn't be close, okay? Now again, totally an inadequate analogy of God and sin, okay? Because sparkles and sprinkles, it's not a moral issue. Obviously, some people, you know, most people like them for some crazy reason, and I don't. But with sin, it actually really is filthy and gross and disgusting. And sometimes it does, sin doesn't bother us because our consciences have been seared, so we sometimes get used to it. But the fact of the matter, it should be gross and disgusting to us. But in the same way that I could not be close to you, you I couldn't come to your house, I couldn't eat your food, we couldn't hang out all the time if you were into that stuff because I don't like it. So if you want to be close to me, there's certain things my wife LaDawn knows because she actually likes sprinkles. She eats them when I'm not in the house and then her and the kids actually sweep the kitchen floor, it's true, to make sure there's no sprinkles cr- rolling around on the floor because it drives me crazy, okay? I, I need help, all right? It's true. But because she loves me and she wants to be close to me, it's important to her what, her, what my likes and dislikes are. It's the same thing with God. You think, well, we don't need to worry about the do's and don'ts anymore because it's all about grace. If you want to walk with God, it matters what his likes and dislikes are. 
And in the do's and don'ts, see, this is the thing, again, and it's not the do's and don'ts as a legalistic thing. It's in relationship. The do's and don'ts are actually about relationship. If you want to walk with Jesus, first you repent and get your forgiveness because you can't work it up. It's not that you do these things first and then he loves you. No, no. First you get forgiveness and you go to him and you want to have a relationship with him and then he starts going into your life and he says, now we've got to work on this because if you want to be in my house, if you want me in your house, you're going to have to work on this. And he starts to take you through these things and you bring your life into alignment with these do's and don'ts because the do's and don'ts are all about being close to Jesus. And they show us the things he hates and the things he loves. And that's why the do's and don'ts are important, right? Second myth here is if we just focus on love, we won't ever have to talk about the do's and the don'ts. And this is a, this is a real popular myth. Lots of preachers preaching this today. Lots of preachers preaching this today. Lots of books getting sold. And their point is, you know what? The most important commandment is just love God and love your neighbor. So if we just preach love, if we just talk about love all the time, people will just automatically do all the do's and don'ts. We won't have to worry about it. The first thing I say to that is, if, that's, if that was true, why did the Bible, why, does, why did God put so many do's and don'ts in the Bible? I mean, I just want to preach what God's word says. The New Testament and the Old Testament are both filled with do's and don'ts. So if it was true, if it was true that God just wanted us to just talk about love, 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 and grace all the time, and those are wonderful topics and we should talk about them, yes, obviously, but if God just wanted us to talk about love all the time, then he would have just done that in here. But he didn't. He also talks about the do's and don'ts a lot in here, and that's because it's actually important to talk about them in order to know them. But yes, it is true, okay? There is a huge element of truth in the fact that love is the most important thing. I'll read you Matthew 22, verse 40 here. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, first and, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so that is true. What Jesus just said there is all the do's and don'ts in Scripture all hang on two hooks, loving God and loving people. That is the heart behind all the do's and don'ts. That's why I tell you the do's and don'ts aren't about legalism. The do's and don'ts aren't a hard thing like, oh, God wants me not to slander people. Wow, what a tough God he is. No. He has a heart of love. He loves you. He loves people. You want to love people? Do not slander. Do not get drunk. Do not do these things. All hang on these hooks. They come out of a heart of love, and they are for the purpose of loving God and loving people. Okay? But this idea that we don't then need to preach the do's and don'ts doesn't make any sense because if you just preach love and not the do's and don'ts, here's the thing that the do's and don'ts do. The do's and don'ts fill in the details of what love looks like. Yes, the most important commandment is love God and love people. That is the most important commandment. But if you don't have the details of what that looks like, you, with your sinful nature, because even Christians, we still battle with our sinful nature, and if you don't have the details of what love looks like, you will make love look like whatever you want it to look like. The do's and the don'ts fill in the details. Yes, love God and love people is the most important thing, and then in all the do's and don'ts, we see what that actually means. See, if you don't have the do's and don'ts and you don't study it, your sinful nature will take you so far astray, you'll have some guy saying, yeah, it's important I love my neighbor and I love God, uh, you know, that I love God first and I love my neighbor as I love myself. And so the way that I love my neighbor like myself and the way I love my friends is I go out and party with them every Friday night and we get drunk. Or another person says, you know, the way I love my girlfriends, the different girlfriends I have is I sleep with them. That's how I love them. Or the way I love my coworkers is I help them cheat the boss out of time and money. Or the way I love my family is I cheat on my taxes and use the money I save to buy my kids better Christmas presents. See, if you don't have the details of what 
godly love looks like, you can make love your neighbor as yourself anything you want. And so, yes, love God and love your neighbor are the most important, and all the commands hinge on those, but it's the do's and don'ts that actually show us what that is supposed to look like. Hugely, hugely important. Which brings us to the third myth, which is it's legalism to preach the commandments, God's do's and don'ts. And this is a huge myth. Again, so many preachers are propagating this right now. And they say the moment, uh, uh, you know, the moment a pastor gets up and preaches do's and don'ts, they say it's legalism. That a pastor should only preach forgiveness, grace, and love all the time. And, and certainly, I want to just acknowledge this, certainly, we shouldn't only preach the do's and don'ts. I mean, if you look at our series over the past year here at Southland, we did a whole series just on Jesus. Who is it? Who is he? We did a whole series now this year. My first series of the year was, was true spirituality. And we've done all kinds of series like that. Certainly, it's, it, certainly, there's more to the Christian life than just do's and don'ts. Who is God? How do we hear his voice? How do we love people? Certainly, that's a big part of it. But a lot of preachers today have this idea that the moment you preach do's and don'ts, the moment you preach thou shalt not and thou shall, they say, you're a legalist, okay? You're a legalist. And so, again, what I have to show you here is that this, this is a, a total myth, and part of this comes from people have a misunderstanding of what real legalism is. And now today in modern Christianity, Christians just throw around this legalism label, and it, and it sticks to someone, and that's like the, the ship sinker. Like, if you get labeled a legalist, or that message is legalistic, then of course we don't have to listen to it. And people have no idea what real legalism is. So let me show you what real legalism is, because obeying God's commands is not legalism, okay? Obeying God's commands is far from legalism, and so let's look at what real legalism is. The first form of legalism, is, and probably the most common one where there is legalism, is this. Uh, form of legalism number one is imposing man-made rules onto people as if they were God's laws, okay? It's probably the number one form that legalism tends to take wherever it takes root is imposing man-made rules onto people as if they were God's laws. See, God's laws are not legalism. In Matthew 5, 28, when Jesus says, do not lust, he's not being a legalist. When Jesus says, do not lust, lust hurts you, Lust hurts your relationship with God. Lust hurts the people around you. Lust hurts people. When Jesus says, do not lust, that's actually life. God's laws are life. When Jesus says, just a few verses later, don't break your promises, that's God's law. God's law gives life. Don't break your promises, that blesses the people around you, that blesses you, it blesses your relationship with God. That commandment is life. To follow that in the context of a relationship with Jesus is life. God's laws are not legalism. It's when you make up man-made laws. Those are the ones that are legalistic. And I want to show you this. Psalm 19, one of my favorite passages of scripture, and I read you just a little snippet of it last week. Today I want to just read you a bigger chunk. But I want, we're going to read this now because these teachers out there today are just saying, God's law is legalism. To preach God's law is legalism. To preach the do's and don'ts is legalism. And I want to show you what God says about God's do's and don'ts. God's do's and don'ts are not legalism. Psalm 19, King David wrote something that for, that's going to stand for all eternity. He wrote it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And anybody who wants to disagree with this isn't disagreeing with me. They're disagreeing with the Holy Spirit. Because this is what the Holy Spirit said about God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This is, this is God's word. This will stand forever. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules, look at that, the rules. He's just got all these different words and names for God's law. The rules of the Lord are true. They're not legalism. And righteousness altogether. Now look at what David says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter, okay? We have this idea that do's and don'ts are so, oh, they're so hard, they're so bad, it's so condemning to talk about God's do's and don'ts. If that's what you think about God's law, that's the devil, that's your fleshly self thinking that, not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit says that God's rules are sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. In studying God's do's and don'ts, we find them to be sweeter than honey. In keeping them and studying them, we are warned. In keeping them and studying them, there is great reward. That's what the Holy Spirit said. God's laws are not legalism. They're wonderful. Man-made laws, on the other hand, when they're taught as if they're God's laws and they're used to measure spirituality, those laws are death. And by the way, this is what Jesus was coming against the Pharisees about in the Gospels. People have this idea. We have the wrong idea about Jesus in the Gospels. A lot of people think that Jesus was against the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't against the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus wrote the Old Testament. And a lot of people have this idea that the Pharisees were legalistic because they were keeping God's laws. Do you know that there is no place in the Gospels where God gets, or Jesus gets mad at the Pharisees for keeping God's laws? Did you know that? Jesus does not break any of God's laws in the Gospels. Did you know that? Jesus never gets mad at a single person in the Gospels because they preached or taught or kept God's laws. Nowhere does Jesus call God's laws legalism. You know what he does get mad at the Pharisees for over and over and over again throughout the Gospels? They're man-made traditions. Jesus was not mad at the Pharisees for keeping God's law. He was mad at them for putting aside God's laws for their own traditions. Let me show you just one passage. I could show you many, many here, but let's look at Mark chapter 7, verse 1. You need to have a whole new understanding of the Gospels in Jesus. The Pharisees' legalism, their problem with legalism, was not that they wanted to obey God's law. It's that they had left God, they had no more heart for him, and they had replaced God's law or added onto God's law their own man-made traditions as if they could earn salvation that way. Let's look at this. Verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. This is not something that was part of God's law. It was part of the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? So the Pharisees could see. Jesus, and this is the thing you have to understand. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus never breaks God's laws, but he goes out of his way repeatedly to offend the Pharisees by breaking man-made traditions. And the Pharisees could see this. They're looking at Jesus and his disciples, and they say, you and your disciples don't follow the traditions. You don't follow them. But he with defiled hands, and Jesus said to them, Well did, now look at Jesus' rebuke to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Nowhere is Jesus mad at the Pharisees for teaching the commandments of God. He's mad at them for teaching the commandments of men as if they are doctrine, as if they are from God. 
That's what Jesus is upset about. It's not legalism. Remember Psalm 19. God's law is sweeter than honey. It revives the soul. It rejoices the heart. To do it, and again, we don't divorce, you know, following God's law from a relationship. In the context of a relationship with him, God's law is wonderful. It's the man-made laws that make things legalist. And that brings me to my, the second form of legalism, which I'm just going to skip over here. I, I don't have time to spend on this one, but uh, first form of legalism is adding man-made laws to God's laws. That's legalism. That's death. Second form is believing that keeping the rules will get you saved apart from a relationship with Christ. I, I'm not teaching here that if you do the Ten Commandments, you can be saved apart from walking with Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves us. But it's in the context of a relationship with him that we obey his commands by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be close to him because that's who he is and that's what he's like. Hugely important. Okay, so now we've established that the do's and don'ts in Scripture are important. It's not just something from the Old Testament from time past. The do's and don'ts are all over the New Testament and they're super important to Jesus and they're super important to a walk with God. So now the question we have to ask is, okay, well, why are you guys so inconsistent? Why do you, you know, no, I don't see any ladies here today with a head covering. Maybe there is one, and it's not bad if you are wearing a head covering. It's not, I'm not against you, someone wearing one, okay? But, um, but if you look around here today, most of you ladies are in direct disobedience to one of Paul's commands. I'm going to read it in just a second, to wear a head covering. And so the question is, well, you know, why do we teach one command, you know, and, or a whole bunch of commands, you know, sexual morality in particular, we teach all of those, and we say these are for sure true, 100% for all of eternity, but we don't hold to the head covering one. Are we being inconsistent? And some of you have encountered this out there in the community and, and in your workplace, and you don't know how to answer it. Well, maybe we are being consistent. Of, of course, the reason the attack comes all the time, the reason the attack comes, you guys are inconsistent. The point is, if you don't follow all of them, I don't have to follow any of them, right? That's, that's what the attack is about. So let's talk about head coverings, all right? And uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 to 16. I'm just going to read a passage here. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut, her, uh, to cut her off her hair or shave her head, I was going to say cut off her head. Yes, that would not be good either. But uh, <laughs> since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her cover her head. There's the command, right? And then skipping ahead to verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so how, how are we going to talk about this? Because clearly this passage says women should wear head coverings. So are we just randomly picking and choosing the ones we want? Okay, well, we're going to have to do some background here, okay? So put on your thinking caps. Again, the point of this whole next section is I want you to see that it's actually not that hard, and that you can have confidence and you can have peace in, in following this book, okay? So just stick with me here for a bit. Um, this book is, it's a messy book. And I'll tell you one of the reasons it's so messy. We would love it. Wouldn't we love this in modern times? We would love this. If God every 10 years updated this thing and sent us down a modern textbook about like this, you know, this big with like 10 pages, point form, cover all the big stuff in scientific exact language and we just know exactly what God wants from us. It would be boring as sin, okay? 
But we'd have a Bible that was just easy. We wouldn't have to rely on God for anything, but it'd be fine. No, God said, no, I'm not going to do that. He did not send us a Bible to Canadians for our culture and another Bible to Africans for their culture. He didn't send a Bible to the Australians for theirs or, heaven forbid, you know, the New Zealanders and, and all those, you know, he doesn't send a Bible to each one and just make it culturally relevant and exact and easy to understand. No, in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty and majesty and glory, he said, I'm going to send a book, a letter, to all the people of the world for all time, but I'm going to do it through sending it to a specific group of people at a specific point in time. So I'm, I'm not going to, in his sovereignty, he doesn't apologize for it. He says, I have a better way. Instead of making it easy for everyone and doing it in their language and their culture and all the modern language and updating it every 10 years, no, no, no. I'm going to do it once for all time. I'm going to send it to the Jewish people and I'm going to do it over a period of time to their culture by their writers and all sorts of stuff and I'm going to send this book to them and then everyone else is going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. When God, did, I mean, this makes, this makes the Bible messy. Because the moment, you did, the moment God decided, I'm going to write it to one group of people at a specific point in time, what that means is he has to write in this book the universal truths that are going to apply to all people in all cultures. He has to get those universal truths to a specific people at a specific time, which means that sometimes those universal truths are going to be clothed in cultural specific language. It's just gonna happen. Okay, for example, let me, let me just use an example. Let's imagine that God had decided to write the Bible instead to us Canadians here and now in modern times. So let's, let's imagine the Apostle Paul is writing his letters right now to us in our culture, okay? Now if he had done that, if God wrote the Bible to us instead of the Jews in today's time, instead of you know a few thousand years ago, a lot of the examples and the stories and applications in here would be totally different. Is that not true? Uh, for example, I bet if the Apostle Paul was living today and he was writing his letters today and the scripture was getting written today, I bet you anything in his letters he would have touched on internet pornography as one of his don'ts. I mean, you can almost guarantee it. Writes a letter and he's writing it to the church at Southland and he says, and you men had better stay far away. Don't, be, don't get caught up in that impurity of internet pornography because it's a, it's a don't, right? And so let's say he writes that. Now let's say someone from our church uh, takes this letter, this Bible that we have, it's been written to Canadians in modern times, and he's a missionary, he gets called by God, he now goes out to the Amazon, and, and it's actually true today, there are still tribes in various places of the native tribes in the, in the Amazon jungle that have yet to have any contact with modern civilization. There's, a, there's actually a few of them. Okay, as incredible as that is to think. So imagine now someone takes this Bible that's written to Canadians in our modern day culture and takes it to one of these tribes that's never had contact with modern civilization. And so this missionary from Southland translates the Bible. A few of these natives get saved. They're now reading their Bibles and they're following Jesus. And now they come to this passage where the Apostle Paul says, and you men have got to stay out of the impurity of internet pornography. And they read this and they have two problems. Okay, first of all, what is the internet? And second of all, what is pornography? They don't know. Okay? Because this book, it's a universe. The universal truth is don't lust. That's universal. Every culture. But they, here, because it was written to a specific group of people at a specific place that's different than theirs, the application sometimes doesn't make sense for their culture. And so that missionary is going to have to take those verses and he's going to have to say, okay, don't worry about the internet pornography part. The, th the point is lusting after women. What are the things that you're doing in your culture that are lustful uh, uh, of women and they're going to have to deal with that? Can you see that? 
I mean, that is just inherent. The moment God decided to go with a book that was not written to every culture at the same time, it was written to a specific group of people at a specific point in time, uh, messiness came into this book immediately. Because immediately, we're going to have to deal. Sometimes, universal truths are going to be clothed in language and examples and things that apply to that culture. And we're going to have to figure out what the underlying truth is for our culture, okay? Are you, are you still tracking with me? Okay, first thing you have to understand here is you don't have to be a scholar to figure this out. Okay, At, this is actually very easy. We do this intuitively. It's not hard to figure out when this is happening. Okay, it's not hard to figure out when this is happening. Happening, uh, for example... Deuteronomy 22 verse 8. I want to show you this right now. It's almost always very obvious where a cultural application is being made. And, and in our hearts, the Holy Spirit bears witness. And we know what these things are. We just don't always know how to explain it. But Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 tells people, it's a law, that when you build a new house, I'm going I'm to read it to you right now, you should put a fence around the roof of your house. How many of you here today have a fence around the roof of your house? But you are all living in blatant disobedience to God's law. And none of you feels guilty about it. Okay, let's read it. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet. Even better word than fence, hey? We can all talk about putting parapets now around our yards and our decks. But anyway, you shall make a parapet for your roof, a fence around your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Okay, so God says to, the, to, the, to Israel, rule, you got to put a fence around the roof of your house and rebuild a house. Now, none of us today do this. And we intuitively know that this is not for us. See, the reason he gave this law in the first place was because in the time when he wrote it, the way their culture was, the way they built their houses, they built their houses with flat roofs, and they used their roof as living space. People, if it was nice, they would sleep out there, they would entertain guests up there, they would eat up there often, and all of this was done on the roof. And God, the underlying universal principle is, God loves human life, and human life is valuable. So he says, when you build a house, I want you to put a fence around your house so that human life isn't needlessly being lost for no reason. Okay, but today, we live in a totally different climate. We live in a totally different culture. We live with totally different technology. We don't live on our roofs anymore. So to put up a fence around the roof totally misses the point of what this law was getting at. Does that make sense to you? The underlying principle is take care of human life. We follow this law today when people put a fence around their pool. When people put a smoke detector in their house, they're following this law right here. They're taking appropriate measures to make sure that human life isn't needlessly lost, okay? Now, this is, this, is very, this is quite obvious in our hearts whenever this is happening. The universal moral laws are totally different than that. That one is applied to technology, time, culture. The universal moral laws, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie. Do not steal. Honor your father and mother. Notice how they're not tied to time or place or technology or culture. They just stand. They're much broader. Do not murder is the same no matter what technology you live in, what culture. It's just do not murder. Don't kill someone premeditated like that. Do not commit adultery. It's the same no matter where you are. The universal moral laws are much broader, but then from time to time we run into these places and they're almost always extremely obvious where a universal broad moral law is applied to a specific situation. Are you guys all still, you're still with me here? You're still good, okay. Back to head coverings. So the question now with head coverings is, is this a universal moral law that always applies? Or is Paul talking to a very specific situation at the Corinthian church? Okay, well, if a command is a universal moral law, so pay attention to this now, if a command is a universal moral law and not just a cultural application of a universal moral law, 
then that means it must have always been true ever since the very beginning, since Adam and Eve. Does that make sense? Example, let's go back to do not murder again, okay? If something is a universal moral law and not just a specific cultural application, if it's a universal moral law like do not murder, that means it's always been true ever since the very beginning. Like there's never been a time or a culture or a place when murder was okay. Is that not true? I mean, there's never been a country or a time period when God goes, you know, in this particular culture, I don't mind if you murder a few people. Never. Right from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, murder was a sin right there. Long before the Ten Commandments were given, the Ten Commandments were already laws. They just weren't written out. But murder was already a sin right at the beginning. And we know this, Genesis 4, one of the first stories we have, one of the first people ever born is Cain. He murders his brother Abel, and God calls it sin. From the very beginning, murder in any culture at all times has always been sin ever since the beginning. And of course that's true because it's a universal moral law. It applies to all people. That means it's always been in force. Okay? Head coverings. If head coverings is a law that applies to all cultures and all churches and all times, not just to the Corinthian church at a specific point in time, if it's for everybody, that means it's been for everybody ever since the beginning, just like do not murder, and do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal. That would mean that right from Adam and Eve, right from Eve and all of her daughters, it was a sin for Eve or any of her daughters to have their heads uncovered before the Lord. If it's a, if it, if it's a universal moral law like do not murder, that means it has to go back right to the beginning because it's a part of God's nature. It's a part of his very character. Okay, so the question is, is head coverings part of God's nature, something that's been in the creation right and wrong ever since the beginning? And the answer is no. You say, how do you know? Two things. First of all, you read through the entire Old Testament, you will not find one single story of God getting mad at somebody or judging somebody because the women weren't wearing head coverings. You won't find one single story in the Old Testament. That's hugely significant. You'll find many, many stories of God judging nations. Many. You'll find many stories of God judging nations and people for murder, for adultery, for slander, for drunkenness, for all kinds of sins. You'll find all kinds of stories in the Old Testament of God judging people, not just the Jewish people, but all people, judging people and nations for breaking those things. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, that sort of stuff. You won't find a single story in the Old Testament where God is mad at people because the women have their heads uncovered. That's significant. The second thing is, you won't find a single commandment in, in the Old Testament. You won't find a single commandment anywhere where God says the women must wear head coverings. Hugely significant. Let me, let me put something up there, okay? This is huge, okay? Uh, I talked about this uh, uh, two years ago in summer. If you could put up that chart, guys. I don't think I'm missing anything here. Yeah. In, in the Old Testament, and I did, I'm, I'm just skimming over this now in 10 minutes, so, but I did a, a whole series on this two years ago called The Law, and there's a paper online. You can access all that for free. But there's four types of laws in the Old Testament. Okay? God gave the Israelites 613 different commands. And they, and they fall into four basic groups. Okay? You've got the ceremonial laws, which is the sacrifices, the temple duties. You've got the Jewish separation laws, you know, circumcision, eating laws, stuff like that. And again, I developed all this in that series and on that, in that paper. You've got the civil laws, which are building codes, farming laws, criminal penalties like stoning an adulterer or a thief or whatever. Those, you have all those kinds. So 613 commands God gave to the Jewish people, you get, but they fall into four groups. And the first three groups are ceremonial, Jewish, and civil. All the laws in those first three were temporary laws. And I can show you much scripture about this. They were temporary. They were for a specific group of people at a specific 
point in time. They had very specific purposes. They were important in that time, but they were never intended for everybody. Like, for example, you'll never find God getting mad at an Egyptian for not being circumcised. Never. The circumcision law was only for the Jews. You'll never find God judging Assyrians because they don't keep the temple ceremonial laws properly. Those laws were only for the Jews. But you will find in the Old Testament God getting mad at Babylonians and Egyptians and Assyrians for breaking the fourth type of command, which is the moral law, because those are the ones that are for all people for all time. They define right from wrong. They're not just for the Jews at a specific point in time. They're for everyone. And the moral laws include the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery. They also uh, include all the laws on sexual morality, and I could develop all that for you. Love your neighbor as yourself, all that sort of stuff. The moral law is for everyone. And this is part of God's gift to the world. He gave the Jews in writing. This is what I'm like for all of eternity. This is my character, and this is right from wrong. This is not for just one culture. This is for all the world to know what right and wrong looks like. That's the moral law. Okay, now here's the thing. Do we find, so when God gave the Jews the moral law, he gave it to them complete. He gave it to them complete because they wanted to have a relationship with him. Remember, the do's and don'ts are all about relationship. God gave to Moses and the Israelites, he gave them the moral law so they would know what right and wrong looks like. He didn't leave things out because anything that, anything that is a sin will make God, a holy God, very angry. Okay? So the moral law is murdering someone, sexual immorality, slander, lying, these things make God, a holy God, angry. He cannot walk, we cannot walk with him in that stuff. So he gave them the list. Here are the things you do if you want to have a relationship with me. Okay? Now here's the thing about head coverings. You won't find it anywhere in those laws. Anywhere. Which means that either God forgot it, like maybe he forgot, and maybe for 1,600 years, from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, the Jews were always sinning whenever the women didn't have head coverings on, and God's going, oh, I'm so angry, I wish I would have written that one down. Oh, you are sinning so bad. Get out of my presence. And they're going, what are we doing? Why is God upset? I don't know why God's upset. He didn't, are we, are we disobeying one of his commands? No, it's not in here. See, he gave them the complete revelation of right and wrong right there. That's it, he did it. He gave them the basis, the moral law. We don't find head coverings in the moral law. We don't find head coverings anywhere in the Old Testament because head coverings for women is not a universal moral law that has been true ever since the beginning. It's not. And we can tell that because it doesn't pop up in God's law. So you say, well then, oh, one more thing I want to say too is this, is the New Testament does not add any new moral commands to the Old Testament. The New, the new Testament doesn't add new laws. It affirms all of the moral laws of the Old Testament. It doesn't add new ones. God didn't make a mistake in the Old Testament. So you say, well then, why did Paul tell the Corinthians that it was such a big deal that they wear a head covering? Okay, well, let's talk about that. There must be a cultural reason. Since we don't find it in here, in the Old Testament, since we don't find it in the beginning, since we don't find God getting upset at, you know, non-Jews or whatever in the Old Testament for it, then we know it has to be culturally specific because it only pops up for the first time in Corinthians. So what's going on in the Corinthian church? Well, it's got to be a culturally specific thing. And if you do a little bit of research, what you will find is that in the Roman Empire, in many places at different times, and it wasn't the same everywhere in the Roman Empire, but in many places of the Roman Empire, 
uh, it, was, it was culturally, there was a, there, it was cultural that women would wear hats. And depending where you were in the empire, there was different reasons for them to be wearing hats or veils or coverings. And in some places in the Roman Empire, women wore uh, veils or coverings when they got married. It was a symbol like, like we wear wedding rings. And then they would wear a veil or a covering to symbolize that they're married. In other places, it was just something that all the women did to kind of differentiate themselves from men. It was sort of a sign of femininity was this head covering. And it had different, different meanings in different places at different times. But certainly in the Roman Empire, and you'll find statues, you'll find ancient writings like this, there was many different places at many times in the Roman Empire where the women were supposed to wear some kind of covering on their head because it had cultural significance. So you say, well, what was going on in the city of Corinth and in the area around the church of Corinth that the women were wearing uh, veils, okay? Probably in Corinth, and we can't be 100% sure about this, but probably in Corinth, scholars tell us that probably in, in that area, women who were married would wear, would wear a covering, okay? But we don't know exactly. What we do know is that in the Corinthian church, these women were taking off their coverings and it was becoming a disruption inside the church and was giving them a bad name in the community okay now why were the women doing this it will have had to do the corinthian church if you read through both the epistles first and second corinthians the corinthian christians had a huge problem with over spiritualization they were constantly over spiritualizing things they had a very greek mindset about spirituality and christianity and so uh, it's likely that they took some of paul's teaching one of paul's you know, one of the awesome teaching of Paul by the Holy Spirit is that in Christ, all of us are equal before God. And Paul teaches this in his epistles that in Christ, before God, men and women are equal before God. Jew and Gentile are equal before God. Slave and master are equal before God. It's a wonderful truth. And possibly what was happening is these women were taking that truth that in Christ we're all equal before God and they were taking this, they were over-spiritualizing and saying, well, if we're all equal before God, men and women, we don't need to wear the sign of femininity. We, we can reject everything in our culture that separates men from women. Or perhaps another theory is that they were, they were over-spiritualizing some of the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught that in heaven there will be no marriage. And so perhaps they were going, since there's no marriage in heaven and the kingdom of heaven is here, they were over-spiritualizing it. We can get rid of all the symbols of marriage and, and some of the trappings of marriage here in this lifetime already. Whatever it was, they were over-spiritualizing the Christian teaching and they were getting rid of, of something that was culturally significant. But by taking it off, it was making a huge disruption in the church and was giving, the, them, that was giving the church a bad name in the community. It'd be sort of like, I was trying to think of a parallel. I couldn't think of a, a real great one from, for our time here and now. But it'd be sort of like this. Imagine this, that a bunch of women here at the church, and especially some of the greeters, would decide that they were going to start wearing their bathing suits to the church on Sunday morning, okay? Now, is it a universal moral law as part of God's nature that a woman never wear a bathing suit? No. Okay, I mean, you can wear, ba- women can wear bathing suits at the beach, and you, the hot tub, uh, the pool, you go swimming, uh, gymnastics. Is that a bathing suit that the gymnasts wear? I don't know, but uh, don't write me an email about it. Um, but there's all kinds of places you can wear a bathing suit, okay? You can wear a bathing suit. It's not a universal moral law that you are sinning if you wear a bathing suit. But if a bunch of women in our church here start wearing bathing suits to church and some of the greeters start wearing bathing suits there, to, to, it would cause a disruption in the church, I can guarantee it, okay? 
Not only would it cause a disruption here in the church, it would give us a bad name in the community. It's not that they're breaking an, a universal moral law that part of God's nature is never should a woman wear a bathing suit. That's not what it is. But it is severely culturally inappropriate. And maybe there's places in the world, maybe there's a church in California on the beach or in Australia somewhere where it's actually appropriate to wear an appropriate bathing suit to church. I don't know. And that's not wrong. But here in this culture, if a bunch of you women started doing that, it would distract people from hearing the word of God and it would, it would keep many people in our community from coming here. They would think, well, actually it might bring some people in, but it might, whatever, I don't know. But it would, it would hinder the work of the gospel, right? And it, so it's not. Now imagine Pastor Ray is out in Uganda. He's on a Tupandani uh, mission and he hears back home, whoa, uproar, bunch of women, greeters especially, they're wearing bathing suits to church. Can you imagine him writing an epistle, First Southland, chapter one, and he's like, Stop wearing bathing suits to church is an abomination. Now, 100 years later, someone's reading this and they're going, oh, it's morally a sin for a woman ever to wear a bathing suit. No, no, no. It's a, it's a cultural application of something that was, it was getting in the way of the gospel. That's what's happening in Corinthians. And we know it's culturally specific because it doesn't go back to the beginning. It's not in God's law. It just pops up later. And that's how we know it's specific. Does, does that make sense? I'll just put up a, a little review of the key points there just to get in there. Why don't we follow all the laws in the New Testament? Some of them are applied to culturally specific situations. By the way, there's not many of these. Uh, this is easy. I've been trying to tell you this the whole time. It's actually easy. By intuition, most of us by the Holy Spirit already know which ones are which. The head coverings one is the biggest example. Most of them in the New Testament are not just culturally specific, okay? But there are a, a couple. How do we know if a New Testament law is only culturally specific and not a universal moral law? Cultural specific commands like the head covering command cannot be found in the eternal moral code God laid down in the Old Testament. Important point, all of God's moral laws are still in effect today, which I end on this. Why is this so important? Why go to all this effort, Chris, to teach us this? Because the attack being made on obeying any of God's commands is you are inconsistent if you obey God's commands on sexual morality, but you don't obey his commands on head covering. And it's not true. We are being very consistent. We are consistent on this. All of God's eternal moral commands will stand forever. But this is a messy book that was written to a specific, specific groups of people at a specific point in time, which means sometimes those universal moral commands are applied to cultural specific situations that God doesn't expect us to listen to the con or to follow. The consistency is all of his universal moral commands we follow all the time. Of course, we, we fail, but it's sin when we fail and we repent. That's the consistency, and we can have peace about it, and it really isn't that hard, all right? Bow your heads when you close your eyes, and let me just pray the peace of the Lord on you today. Father, and faith in, in your word. God, this is your word, and we hold to all of your moral commands because we want to know what pleases you. And do not murder and do not slander and do not gossip and love your neighbor as yourself. These are forever and we hold to all of them and yes, we're imperfect and we fall, but Lord, we repent when we fall short on these commands. But Lord, there is such an attack on the church. There's such an attack on your laws today, Father. People don't want to obey your laws and they'll use any excuse they can not to obey them. Jesus, you know that one of the big attacks today is that we're inconsistent. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would give everyone here itself a peace that we begin to be mature in how we navigate this book. It actually isn't that hard to follow your moral commands. It's wonderful. It's life by the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.